Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's Audible Cape Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Nosile Zuma and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sour. A peace process in South Sudan remains fragile despite progress, and UN member states urge to do more to end political crisis in Myanmar. In economics news, Nigeria threatens to shut down filling stations hoarding fuel, and in sports news, a final test between India and England gets underway. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. Police have fired tear gas and soldiers have shot the guns into the air in northwest Nigeria as violence broke out amid the return of 279 kidnapped schoolgirls to their families. The kidnapping of the girls from this school had made world headlines. Chaos broke out as parents, impatient to take their children home, burst into a hall where government officials were giving lengthy speeches in front of the newly freed girls. Witnesses say at least three people were shot, but it's not immediately clear by whom. Boarding schools in northern Nigeria have become targets for mass kidnappings for ransom by armed criminal gangs. The trend was started by Boko Haram, which kidnapped 270 school girls in 2014. International police organization Interpol has warned people around the world that no approved coronavirus vaccines are available for sale on the Internet amid news that Interpol, with the assistance of South African and Chinese police, have dismantled a fake vaccine distribution network. South African authorities remain on high alert after a bust in November in Germiston, where 2,400 bogus vaccines were seized. Three Chinese nationals and one Zambian were arrested. Interpol says Chinese police have also arrested 80 suspects in seized fake vaccines. Police spokesperson Brenda Muradili says Gauteng's organized crime unit made the Germiston arrests. On the 18th of November 2020, Gauteng Organized Crime Narcotics Unit acted on intelligence received regarding individuals who were involved in the smuggling, storing and distributing of COVID-19 vaccines. The members swiftly conducted observations at the suspected premises. The following day, on the 19th, a multidisciplinary team conducted a tactical disruptive operation at the storage facility. During the search of the premises, a large quantity of counterfeit 3M branded N95 masks valued at about 6 million rand were found. A further search led to the discovery of illicit unregistered COVID-19 vaccine. Schools in Zimbabwe are set to reopen this month in two steps, starting with the three examination classes and the rest of the classes a week later. The reopening is now possible following the fall in coronavirus infection rates and the preparations done in all schools to ensure a safe environment. Information, Publicity and Broadcasting Services Minister Senator Monica Mutsvangwa announced the phased reopening in Harare following a cabinet meeting. Cabinet agreed that the school calendar for 2021 starts on a slightly phased approach, with the examination classes opening on 15th March and the rest on 22nd March 2021. Teachers for examination classes should therefore report for duty on 10th of March 2021 and the rest of the teachers on the 17th March 2021. There shall be rotational school attendance in classes where learners cannot exercise social distancing. On the days when children are not at school, learners will be engaged through strategies such as open distance learning and e-learning. 
South Africa's Home Affairs Minister Aron Mutuledi says more than two-thirds of corruption investigations in the department relate to immigration permits. Many foreign nationals come to South Africa seeking a better life and some bend the rules of the assistance of corrupt officials to get into the country. Minister Mutuledi was answering questions virtually during the Peace and Security Cluster oral reply session by the National Assembly. At the press conference, I've just announced the establishment of a five-member ministerial task team to review certain categories of permits uh, that were issued since 2004, there in which the Immigration Act number 13 of 2000 came into operation. This is because of the realization that at least two-thirds of the corruption matters being investigated by the anti-corruption unit have to go to do with permitting. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo has apologized at a press conference after three women accused him of sexual harassment, telling reporters he was embarrassed but vowing not to resign amid a growing chorus for him to step down. The Democrat has rejected accusations that he touched anyone inappropriately while acknowledging that his action made people feel uncomfortable. As the state's Attorney General leads an investigation into the allegations, this was Cuomo's apology. First, I fully support a woman's right to come forward. And I think it should be encouraged in every way. I now understand that I acted in a way that made people feel uncomfortable. It was unintentional, and I truly and deeply apologize for it. I feel awful about it and frankly i am embarrassed and that's the news headlines at 7:30 central african time sabc news independent and impartial from an african perspective Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.08 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Every tool available needs to be used by the international community to stop the unfolding situation in Myanmar. That's the message from the Special Envoy of the United Nations Secretary General to that country who reported that more than 50 people had died with more than 1,200 detained since the army overthrew the elected civilian government led by Nobel Peace Laureate Aung San Suu Kyi. Reports from the region point to a dramatic escalation from security forces, with more than 30 deaths reported countrywide on Wednesday alone, shown by Peace reports. With large protests continuing unabated since the February 1st coup, the security apparatus has swung into high gear to counter the resistance as diplomatic efforts make little progress in dislodging the military's power grab. Christine Schreiner-Bergner is the Secretary-General Special Envoy to Myanmar. I saw today very disturbing video clips. Uh, one like was uh, a police beating a volunteer medical crew. Uh, they were not armed. Uh, another video clip showed a protester was taken away from police and they shot, shot him uh, from very near, maybe only one meter uh, he didn't resist to his arrest, um, and uh, it seems that he died on, on the street. Altogether, we have um, around 1,200 people uh, are now detained, and many families don't know where the, their members of the families are detained, if they are healthy or not. So how can we watch this situation longer? Bergner has explained that she's struggled to gain access to the country with the military saying she was welcome only once their investigations into dubious claims of election fraud were completed and only when they had quelled protests 
described as a disobedience movement. We know that several countries already took bilaterally sanctions, but it's clearly up to the member states to decide what kind of measures they will take uh, further. Um, and we know I had discussion with the army and I uh, warned them that member states and security council might take uh, huge strong measures. Uh, and the answer was we are used to sanctions and we, we survived those uh, sanction time in the past. When I also warned they will go in uh, an isolation, they, the answer was uh, we have to learn to walk with only few friends. She's due to brief the Security Council on Friday in closed consultations, a matter SABC News raised with her. Listen. Russia and China will be in the room. They've made it clear that the, the coup and developments in Myanmar uh, is an internal matter and that the rest of the international community should respect uh, Myanmar's sovereignty. I wonder what you make of that argument in particular, given uh, the consensus you seek in terms of action from the council. I hope that they recognize that it's not only a, it's not an internal um, uh, affair. It's it it hits uh, the, the stability of the region uh, because uh, if we know that the ethnic armed organization are determined not to uh, allow this coup uh, continue, and they also said that they suspend the dialogue with the the Tamado, then uh, and if both sides will start to use violence, then we have a situation of a real war in Myanmar, which is in nobody's interest, not for the people but uh, in Myanmar, but also not for the region. So I hope that China will uh, realize that it will be uh, important uh, to uh, work together, but also for Russia. So I really hope that this unity will be upheld in, on Friday. Any coordinated action from the Council highly unlikely given the divisions with bilateral punitive measures, including sanctions, more realistic in the immediate term. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pease in New York. The revitalized peace agreement in South Sudan is at risk of collapse as the international community was urged to step up pressure on national leaders amid a political environment the United Nations describe as fragile. Just more than a year since the establishment of a transitional government led by President Salva Kiir Mayadit and longtime rival Rek Macha, growing unease that what little progress has been achieved may fall apart. NGOs also pointed to the COVID-19 pandemic that has further devastated a country already on its knees. Sharon Bryce-Pete reports. A year on since the establishment of a transitional arrangement between the two main protagonists, progress has inched frustratingly slowly according to the UN and echoed by a human rights activist who briefed the council. Listen to Jacqueline Nasiwa, founder and national director of the Center for Inclusive Governance and Justice in South Sudan. In the two years since the agreement was signed, the parties have embarked on steps. That to me and many of my fellow citizens appear to be only drops in the ocean. I am deeply concerned by the unacceptable slow pace of implementation and the lack of political will shown by the parties as my people continue to suffer on a daily basis. Our leaders must be held accountable for implementing key aspects of the peace agreement in the remainder of the transitional period. This is what our people around the country are calling for. The UN points to some gains, a ceasefire and a peace deal that continue to largely hold, a transitional government that just marked a one-year anniversary, national and provincial leadership squabbles have been put to bed, and civilians housed in UN protection sites have largely transitioned back to their homes or elsewhere, gains that remain tenuous at best, as the Secretary General's special representative and head of the peacekeeping mission in that country, David Shearer, explains. Overall, political violence has reduced by a power of 10 compared to the number of people who were dying or displaced from widespread conflict in 2016. A caveat 
is our concern about the upsurge in armed community militia seemingly in open defiance of the state forces. The reality is, though, that the the peace process remains extremely fragile. Many citizens are wary that the political will may falter. They fear the positive progress may collapse. It is for those people that we, the international community, must remain united and committed to pushing the peace process forward. We can't sit on the sidelines as spectators. Look back four years. That's what failure looks like, and it's in no one's interests to return there. Word from the ground is that the economy has collapsed because of poor management of revenue and natural resources, while the challenges continue to stack up. Jacqueline Asiwa explains. As in many other parts of the world, the COVID-19 pandemic has devastated South Sudan. Cases are on the rise daily, crushing an already weak healthcare system that cannot meet even basic demands for services. The pandemic comes amidst a myriad of other issues. Floods in most parts of Upper Nile region, famine in Jongole and Pibor, and continuous violation of the ceasefire by its parties, including in the containment sites, fighting with non-signatories to the agreement, communal violence causing loss of lives and property, sexual violence against women and girls, displacement and broader public health crisis. Shearer agreed. The continuing absence of a financial system that works for the people of South Sudan. The wealth of this country, from oil and elsewhere, bypasses its people, siphoned off in secrecy with no public accountability of how it is spent. (coughs) Increasingly, people are asking the obvious question. Why should key decision makers benefiting from their current positions hold an election that could put their access to power and resources at risk? The council expected to renew the mandate of the UN peacekeeping mission to that country by March 15th, with calls for a larger posture towards supporting the peace process. I'm Sherman Ricepees in New York. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger, in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9, and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa. From an African perspective. It's 7.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Nigeria has become the third West African nation to receive the COVID-19 vaccine after Ghana and Ivory Coast. The consignment of 3.9 million doses of AstraZeneca arrived in Nigeria aboard an Emirates aircraft just before noon on Tuesday. Channel Africa's Correspondent in Lagos, Colin Zatohengbe, has more. This is to announce that our first COVID vaccine, AstraZeneca Oxford COVID-19 vaccine, also called Covishield, has just been granted emergency use authorization by NAVDAC. That was the Director General of the National Agency for Food and Drug Administration and Control, Professor Moji Adeyeye, firing the salvo that set the ball rolling for the COVID-19 vaccine. To come into Nigeria two weeks before the Emirate aircraft bearing the consignment finally touched ground in Abuja. Nigeria's health officials, members of the Presidential Task Force on COVID-19 and members of the Diplomatic Corps, led by the Task Force Chairman Boss Mustafa, were on hand to take delivery of the consignment at the Inamdi Azikiwe International Airport, Abuja. Boss Mustafa at the occasion appealed to Nigerians not to entertain any fear over the safety of the vaccines, which is meant solely to serve the citizens' interest in the fight against the pandemic. They are very effective and that I would urge at the time of vaccination and deployment, if you fall into the category that will be vaccinated, make yourself available. It will do you no harm. 
Nobody is intending to kill anybody. This is for the good and well-being of Nigeria. Nigeria did not limit its expectations of COVID vaccine supplies to a single source, but also sought the help of agencies and international bodies to help it secure enough vaccines to help meet the needs of the over 2 million people. Faisal Shwaibu of the National Primary Health Delivery Agency says Nigeria will also receive some vaccines through the African Union before long. We are also expecting uh, vaccines uh, from the African Union through uh, the AVAT uh, uh, platform. We are expecting some 41 million doses uh, of, uh, of vaccines from the African Union made up of up to 22.9 million doses uh, of AstraZeneca and about 18.4 million doses of uh, the Johnson & Johnson. The India High Commissioner to Nigeria, Abe Takur, says... The authorities in New Delhi has approved extra vaccines to be delivered to Nigeria very soon as a mark of good gesture, in addition to the quantity ordered by Abuja. I would also like to say that as a gesture of goodwill, in addition to the supplies through COVAX, India will also be donating 100,000 doses of vaccines uh, for Nigeria, for which we got the approval yesterday, and it will be coming shortly as well. But before now, Nigeria had held multilateral and bilateral talks with relevant agencies and organizations on the need to have its citizens covered in the vaccination process and the various brands which will be suitable for its use. Reacting to the current supplies, Mukhtar Mohammed of the Presidential Task Force says there was political pressure at home to make sure that the country's requirements were met. This has been um, a very long journey. Um, the PTF, in collaboration with the Federal Ministry of Health, as well as the National Primary Healthcare Development Agency, have been engaging with um, the global bodies, particularly the WHO, uh, Gavi Alliance, and uh, SEPI, to see that Nigeria is able to secure our fair share of this vaccine. There have been um, several discussions and negotiation in terms of the quantity, in terms of the order which country gets its own first. And there has been a lot of pressure from our political leaders to ensure that Nigeria is not uh, shortchanged in this process. The president of the Nigeria Medical Association, Innocent Uja, says it is gladdening to have the vaccines and the process that has been laid out for the dispensation of the product. Now that we have got the vaccines and many more will come in, what will um, play out as a success is the way and manner these um, vaccines are being used and distributed so that many of our people uh, have access. I'm happy to note that um, doctors and other health workers at the front line will um, receive the vaccines first and then it goes to those who are 60 and above and then of course those who have comorbidities of hypertension, diabetes, cardiac disease and renal conditions so that uh, we reduce the morbidity and mortality that are associated with COVID-19. A professor of virology, Oye Woleto Mori, speaking on the apathy with which some Nigerians have treated the issue of vaccinations in the past, says there should be openness so that the public will see that the vaccine used is the same for everyone, irrespective of class or status. Now, One of the first things to think about is that over 20 million people have been given this vaccine in other parts of the world. And we have not had any adverse effects of people dying. So that should give us some kind of confidence about, about it. I think one of the best ways for us to get um, as many of our people, public people, to get involved and make use of those vaccines and do it publicly so that people will be convinced and see that it's the same vaccine that I'm going to get that my president got, uh, minister got, that way you're going to convince your people by showing public example as role models. Nigeria became the third African nation to have the COVID-19 vaccines delivered to it after Ghana and Ivory Coast. The consignment came after Nigeria was dropped from the initial list of the countries to receive the products in January. Nigeria says its choice of the Indian-made AstraZeneca vaccine was informed by the favorable condition required for the storage of the product and which is consistent with Abuja's ability to manage. From Lagos, I am Collins Nusato Ingbe for Channel Africa News. 
Rwanda has received its first COVID-19 shots from the World Health Organization's global vaccine sharing scheme COVAX, a flight carrying 240,000 doses of the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine arrived in the Rwandan capital Kigali on Wednesday. A reporter in Kigali, Silvanas Karamera, has more. The first shipment was received by Rwanda's Minister of Health, Dr. Daniel Ngamije, together with representatives from WHO and UN resident coordinator in Rwanda for the NDIA. The high-risk groups include frontline workers, people above 65 years, health personnel, as well as those with underlying health conditions, will be given priority, the minister said. Rwanda is among the first countries to receive consignment from the COVAX facility, he added. We are pleased to receive these first AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines through the COVAX initiative and appreciate the partnerships with the UN family, Gavi, funders, as well as manufacturers that have made it possible. He said that the government was going to immediately roll out vaccination planning beginning with the cup to Kigali this Thursday. The arrival of COVID-19 vaccines was a good news to some citizens in Rwanda. Uh, to me, I believe this is like the light, at, uh, a small light at, uh, at the end of the tunnel because uh, we've been in limbo for a long time not knowing what's next. But now that we're coming into the country, definitely a sign of hope that uh, we can beat this and within a short period of time. But for some people, these vaccines require more time for contemplations. Mm, that's a tough question. Uh, am I ready? Right. I think it will, it will depend on uh, the type of vaccine that I'll be receiving. If, I'm, if I receive, I'm given... The Pfizer vaccine, that is good news. If it's AstraZeneca, I'm not sure that I will take it. I might play hide and seek until I'm able to receive the Pfizer vaccine, depending on the quality that we've been reading uh, in the news and, uh, uh, you know, and, and the, the reviews that have been made about this vaccine. But the Minister for Health has clearly said that uh, the variety of these vaccines depends on... Uh, capacity of the country and that is why they have uh, ordered two different uh, vaccines. Why, why should you be selective, for example, or uh, pessimistic about this? The reason why I will be selective is because um, there, have, there have been some reports about Pfizer vaccines. Um, uh, it seems to be the best quality out there mm -hmm. uh, of the vaccines. Um, and uh, we know that it has the uh, high quality of, of, you know, protecting someone from contracting the, 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 the virus. I understand you are one of those people that have really uh, been following up on what is uh, transpiring in here. But uh, uh, you just said that uh, you, you will be playing sick and hide. And don't you think that maybe this will be confirming the uh, ongoing looming concerns whether or not the vaccines are effective? No, so here's the thing. I'm mm -hmm. not saying the vaccines are not effective. I'm mm -hmm. only saying how effective, to what extent are they effective. I know for a fact that, well, at least according to what I've been reading and, um, you know, hearing from other people, Pfizer vaccines are more um, effective. Mm. So I'd be happy to take something that is more effective, something that, you know, I can take one job without taking two jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, if I can take one job and that's it, I'll be happy to do that. If I can take something that does not have side effect on my body, that's it. So, so you prefer a single shot to two shots, right? Yes, I prefer a single shot. That if means it can you, cover up. That means you will be waiting for J and J uh, jobs. That will be fine. That will be safe. But uh, but I also think uh, the Pfizer vaccine is much uh, safe. Mm. Um, the backlash against vaccination seemed to be disturbing the minister. I'd like to call on all citizens to avoid any fear for all of these vaccines are of good quality after they passed all trials and finally proved to be safe. Following the development, the vaccines will on Thursday be dispatched from Rwanda Biomedical Center to all 508 health centers in the country. The government has consistently called on the yet-to-be-vaccinated individuals to further comply with the COVID-19 preventive measures already put in place. Silvanus Kalemera reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali.
It's 7.29 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netle to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. In the headlines, police have fired tear gas and soldiers have shot the guns into the air in northwest Nigeria as violence broke out amid the return of 279 kidnapped schoolgirls to their families. International police organization Interpol has warned people around the world that no approved coronavirus vaccines are available for sale on the internet. Amid news that Interpol, with the assistance of South African and Chinese police, have dismantled a fake vaccine distribution network. And New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo has apologized at a press conference after three women accused him of sexual harassment, telling reporters he was embarrassed but vowing not to resign amid a growing chorus for him to step down. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Anne. New research from the country's top medical scientists show that people infected with the variant of the coronavirus found in South Africa have developed a level of immunity against that variant and possibly other mutations of the coronavirus as well. As according to the Guazul-Natal Research, Innovation and Sequencing Platform, or CRISP, they held a joint online media briefing with the National Institute for Communicable Diseases the National Health Laboratory Services, the Health Department and the Department of Higher Education, Science and Innovation. The new variant, which was initially detected in South Africa, is now found in 48 countries. It has nine different mutations. Prabhashni Mudli reports. Through a joint effort between the KwaZulu-Natal Research, Innovation and Sequencing Program, or CRISP, the NICD and universities across the country Laboratories submitted samples from patients that were infected with both the initial variant and that of 501YV2 strain. The test measured the neutralization of 44 patients that were infected in both the first and second waves of the COVID pandemic. It was found that 501YV2 variant was able to neutralize itself from other variants, including the variant which circulated in the first wave, thus providing a level of immunity to itself and other variants. Professor Penny Moore is from the NICD. We saw a substantial loss of neutralization, a ninefold reduction in average titer, which is essentially a measure of how well neutralizing antibodies can prevent a virus from infecting a cell. So what this means is that is that the neutralizing antibodies elicited by the new variant are somehow different in their ability to be able to recognize not only their own virus, but also other viruses. This is potentially good news. Unlike the, the antibodies that were triggered by the original variant, these antibodies seem somehow to have a little bit more breadth. 
A genomics team led by the Pozzola Natal Research Information and Sequencing Platform, or CRISP, was responsible for detecting the 501YV2 variant last year. This variant has claimed the bulk of the over 50,000 COVID deaths that have been recorded in South Africa. CRISP Director Professor Tulio de Oliveira says this information is key to fighting new variants. Genomic surveillance is a critical component of the epidemic response. One thing that we show now the new results, the plasma collected from people infected with the variant has good neutralizing activity against itself, but also against the first wave virus and potentially other variants of concern. It means that people infected may have some immunity against the variant and other lineages, but it also means that we know that immunity can decrease over time, so in no way we are saying that these people shouldn't be vaccinated. The opposite, everyone we should try to increase vaccination to avoid the very deadly third wave. Chairperson of the Ministerial Advisory Council, Professor Salim Abdul Karim, says that the groundbreaking findings can be used to develop a vaccine to protect against the 501YV2 and other future strains. Say that this new variant is able to generate immunity that is quite potent against itself and against other variants that we have been able to test it. That's fundamentally saying if a vaccine is built on this new variant's strain capabilities, we can expect that there's a good chance that that vaccine will elicit good immune responses that will protect people from getting 501YV2. Such a vaccine has already been made by Moderna. Pfizer is doing similarly. AstraZeneca is doing similarly. Johnson & Johnson are doing similarly. Scientists have warned that COVID-19 will continue to mutate. Professor Tulio de Oliveira says that South Africa has the tools to detect new variants and that government has given CRISP 25 million rand for further genomic research on the characteristics of variants. Prabhashni Mudli, Johannesburg. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. It's 7.37 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. At the beginning of the year, the World Health Organization set a target to vaccinate health workers and vulnerable groups against COVID-19 in 100 days. And at the helm of the commitment is the Ethiopian biologist Dr. Tedrosa Adenom, the general director of the World Health Organization, now faced with the challenge to save the world from a pandemic. Coletta Wanjohi gives us a profile of Tedros. When he assumed the top WHO post in 2017, Dr. Tedros Adenom, backed by the African Union, had a vision. Dr. Tedros Adenom is the director general for the World Health Organization. Together, we will save and improve the lives of our most vulnerable brothers and sisters. This is my most solemn commitment to you. Dr. Tedros Andanom served in the Ethiopian government as the Minister of Health from 2005 to 2012 and later as Foreign Affairs Minister until 2016. He is recognized for leading Ethiopia in the fight against HIV infections, reducing child mortality, malaria mortality, and deaths from tuberculosis. His vision as the WHO leader was to face perhaps his biggest challenge when COVID-19 began. We're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Since February last year, Dr. Andanom has had a daunting task, 
marred by criticism. Former U.S. President Donald Trump blamed him for allegedly supporting China in delaying to declare COVID-19 a global health emergency. This was followed by a decision by the U.S. government to stop funding to the WHO from May this year. There has been more criticism of Dr. Andanom's organization following the findings presented by the WHO team that traveled to China early this year to investigate the possible origin of the virus. Their findings that the virus was not processed in a lab and could have jumped from animals to humans was not welcomed by all globally. But the WHO boss insists now that the vaccines are being manufactured, focus should be more on ensuring the pandemic is controlled. Dr. Tedros Andanum is the Director General for the World Health Organization. Vaccine equity is especially important for fragile and vulnerable groups and for small island states like those in the Pacific and Caribbean with small populations who can miss out on vaccines because they have less bargaining power than bigger countries. Everywhere means everywhere. Nowhere should be left behind. Dr. Andanom's team worked closely with the African Union under the leadership of South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa to ensure that African countries are well prepared to face the pandemic and benefit from the WHO-supported COVAX facility. And vaccines that will ensure at least 20% of the population in Africa is immunized have started arriving. The WHO Director Generals serve a five-year term, which is re-electable. And Dr. Tedros Andanum hopes his tenure that he began in 2017 will have a desirable impact on people's health by the time it ends. Koleto Anjohi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa's office has told the State Capture Commission's legal team that the President will wait until after Mulefe has completed his testimony to respond to possible allegations Mulefe made about him. Chief Justice Raymond, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo says President Cyril Ramaphosa is not compelled to respond to allegations made about him at the stage. Zondo confirmed that the 14-day period offered to implicated persons to respond following the delivery of the Rule 3.3 notice has lapsed without a response from the President. Naledi Ngob reports. The Commission's Chairperson, Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, has explained the rules of the Commission once someone has been implicated in witness testimony. This after the Commission's evidence leader, Advocate Bula Godwin Sileka, indicated that Ramaphosa had already received a Rule 3.3 notice informing him of possible implication in evidence presented at the Commission. The time when you are obliged to file an affidavit is when you receive a regulation 10.6 directive from the chairperson. Yes. So under Rule 3.3, it's up to you if you want to respond. But the commission may decide that even if you didn't want to respond, it wants an affidavit from you. In that case, it can ask you to provide an affidavit. If you, you cooperate and respond and provide it, then no 10.6 directive needs to be issued. Mulefe told the commission that he had no knowledge of plans by former President Jacob Zuma to appoint him as finance minister in 2015. Mulefe says he did not need help from the Guptas or anyone else with his career. But if the evidence on affidavit by Dr. Zulim Kizer, Ms. Kesi Duarte and Mr. Mantashe is true, we then know that President Zuma wanted to replace Mr. Gordon with U.S. Minister of Finance. So I'm just saying... There are these things, and it's only fair that you should get a chance to say what you can say. I don't want to comment. All of, all of the yeah. things that you mentioned, yes. I don't feature anyway. Yes. I was yes. not there. I never said yes. anything. Mulefe says he could not have influenced a decision that saw Gupta-owned company Tegeta receive a 1.6 billion rand prepayment for the supply of coal to Eskom's Hendrina power station. On the 1st of September, I underwent a procedure for my shoulder. And during that procedure, there was a problem. My lungs were flooded with water. And uh, they had to induce a coma for about 30 hours. And uh, uh, subsequent to that, uh, I was not at work for the whole of December. I was not part of uh, these uh, negotiations for this country. 
The commission will continue to hear ESCOM-related evidence from the former chief executive officer of Trillion Management Consulting, Bianca Goodson, at 10 o'clock on Thursday morning. The commission will also hear Denel-related evidence from the former Denel board chairperson, Daniel Mancha. I'm Nalini Ngobo in Johannesburg. It's 7.44 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Our economics update up next with Nosile Zuma. Thank you, Lolo. Good morning. The Special Investigating Unit, SIU, says it will work swiftly to ensure all employees of the South African Airways who are found to have been involved in fraud and corruption within the company forfeit their pension monies in order to recover what is owed. It says this includes severance packages that workers are entitled to during the company's retrenchment process. SIU head advocate Andy Mutiva says in most of the investigations into state-owned enterprises, there is a trend where employees get off scot-free by resigning when they are found to be on the wrong side of the law. If you have been served with a Rule 33 notice to say somebody has submitted a statement or affidavit that implicates you or may implicate you, you have uh, certain rights which you must decide whether you exercise them or not, one of which is uh, whether you are going to apply or leave to cross-examine that person. You must do that within 14 days after receiving the three notice. But there is provision for condemnation if you are late and you provide an explanation why you were late. The State Capture Commission of South Africa will continue to hear ESCOM-related evidence in Johannesburg this morning from the former Chief Executive Officer of Trillion Management Consulting, Bianca Goodson. The commission will also hear Danel-related evidence from former Board Chair Daniel Manta. Yesterday, the commission's Chair Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo explained the rules when someone has been implicated in witness testimony. This was after the commission's evidence leader, Advocate Pule indicated that President Cyril Ramaphosa received a notice informing him of possible implication by testimony last month. If you have been served with a Rule 33 notice to say somebody has submitted a statement or affidavit that implicates you or may implicate you, you have uh, certain rights which you must decide whether you exercise them or not one of which is uh, whether you are going to apply or leave to cross-examine that person. You must do that within 14 days after receiving the three notice, but there is provision for condemnation if you are late and you provide an explanation why you were late. Mine workers in Zimbabwe have accepted a wage deal within mining firms. Unions say they have accepted a 22.2% pay increase backdated to January this year. Workers will also be partly paid in United States dollars. Workers also wanted to be paid a COVID-19 allowance. Last week, the Zimbabwe Diamond and Allied Workers Union had warned of unspecified action if mining companies do not come up with a new salary offer for the first quarter of this year. The mining sector is expected to be a role player in helping the recovery of the economy. Last year, export earnings contributed 73% of the country's total exports. Nigeria's Department of Petroleum Resources has threatened to shut down or sanction filling stations found to be hoarding fuel. A special task force has been set up to intensify surveillance and monitoring of all retail outlets and depots nationwide. This follows panic buying of fuel despite the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation telling Nigerians that there will be no pump price increase and that there is sufficient fuel in the country for more than 40 days. And international auditing firm Deloitte has agreed to pay $80 million to the Malaysian government to settle claims relating to their involvement in the 
1MBD scandal in which more than $4 billion went missing from the country's state investment fund. Malaysia's former Prime Minister Naib Razak is on trial for his involvement in the fund. The BBC's Celia Hatton has more. The 1MDB fund was first promoted as a bold way for public money to be used to boost private investments, promising a brighter Malaysia. Finance officials say they're still actively pursuing individuals too. Malaysia's former Prime Minister Najib Razak is on trial for his role in siphoning off billions from the scheme, while an international arrest warrant is in place for the former playboy financier known as Jolo, who was also accused of living a life of luxury after pilfering billions from 1MDB. For Channel Africa, I'm Nusi Kezuma. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In this hour in a sports update, the four-day European Athletics Indoor Championships have begun in Turin in Poland. The championships will finish on Sunday. Our correspondent Geshem Nyati reports. Around 700 athletes from 47 nations have converged to compete in the championships. Great Britain entered a contingent of 46 athletes. Their leading sprinter, Dina Asher-Smith and middle distance champion Laura Miwa excused themselves to focus on the upcoming Tokyo Olympic Games in Japan. Katarina Johnson-Thompson, the reigning World and Commonwealth Games heptathlon champion, will miss out due to an injury. There is, however, an abundance of many other top-class athletes in action. The list includes Nafi Tiamo of Belgium, an Olympic heptathlon champion, and 2017 World Female Athlete of the Year, Italian high jumper Gian Macro Tamberi, Norwegian 1500 m champion Jakob Ingebristen, and World Pole Vote record holder Amand Duplantis of Sweden. Momentum Proteas coach Hilton Mwering says his players are itching to get out of quarantine and start physically preparing for their series against India that begins on Sunday. South Africa arrived in the subcontinent on Saturday for the tour, which comprises of five one-day internationals and three 2020s, all to be played within a biosecure environment in Lugno. South African women protesters embark on their first away tour of the COVID-19 era, but Mwereng believes they were well prepared for the protocol that had awaited them in the Asian country. South African boxing trainer and manager Colin Nathan says developing and nurturing boxing in the African continent remains on top of his list. Look, there are talent, there are talented fighters that have obviously earmarked at the moment, obviously because of the situation of traveling, which now seems to be opening up. I've kind of taken a backseat on that. Uh, developing and nurturing African talents is still very much on the top of my list. Um, it might not happen this year. It's probably going to happen next year. Also, we need to understand and see what happens with the Olympics in Japan, if it's going to happen. You know, there are a couple of kids from Ghana, and, and Uganda that I, I have earmarked for potential signings for NCAA Africa. But obviously right now we just have to see what happens with regards to Olympics and, and travel and, and the vaccine and so forth. The 2017 South African award-winning boxing trainer is concerned about the absence of the country's boxers at the Olympics. Nathan says there is still a lot of work to be done on amateur and grassroots level. Well, that's a good question. I think more needs to be done with the Narbonne amateur boxing at grassroots level. I think that a team for the next Olympics should be already earmarked and, and, and there should be like training camps and so forth for these kids to actually be earmarked for the next Olympics and they should be identified right now and they should be nurtured accordingly and obviously looked after from Sonoba. Is that going to happen? I'm going to be brutally honest and say no, it's not going to happen right now, but should it happen? Absolutely. And a century from skipper Sean Williams, coupled with destructive pace bowling from Blessing Mozarabani and Victor Nyauchi, led Zimbabwe to a 10-wicket win 
over Afghanistan inside two days in the first test in Abu Dhabi. Williams hit 105 to guide Zimbabwe to 250 all out before Afghanistan trailing by 119 were bowled out for 135 in their second innings. That left Zimbabwe to score 17 runs which they made without any loss. Afghanistan had been bowled out for 131 in their first innings. This becomes Afghanistan's third defeat in five tests since gaining status to play the five-day format in 2017. The second test starts on the 10th of March also in Abu Dhabi. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Mondling Nobo with a song titled Inganyesi. Goodbye and keep safe.
Sing on. 